0: In nearly four decades as a rider, John Cord has ridden in the Kentucky Derby a grand total of three times. Will long-range toddy be the horse to realize Cord's dream of winning the big one, plus a nuanced view of what's happened at Santa Anita by looking back at what's happened before? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They out. And they're off. It's a move
1: to the top of the straight. Put the head moving.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN an app Many in the racing world marvel at how 53-year-old Mike Smith continues to perform at the sport's highest level, including his Triple Crown win last year on Justify. But Smith has cut back on the number of days and races he rides, just 246 starts last year. He's known as Big Money Mike because he's able to pick his rides in the biggest races and often wins them. In a different way, John Court is even more of a marvel than Mike Smith. John Court is 58 years old, but he's never just cherry-picked big races on big race days. John Court is a true grinder, won over 4,000 races. He sets up shop in jockey colonies, mainly in the Midwest and South, and stays there, riding day in and day out for not a lot of glory or money. Last year, he made just 409 starts, but that was because he missed a couple of months after breaking his collarbone in a motorcycle accident. Sure, John Kortz won graded stakes in his career, including back-to-back Arkansas Derbies in 2010 and 2011. He's got a pretty good shot to win that race this year as
1: well. Galilean nearest the rail. Improbable in the center. Extra Hope is between horses and Improbable. slingshots to the front. Improbable. Now a length and a half in front. Long-range Toddy is running a very big one in the center of the track. Improbable. Long-range Toddy trying to gun him down. Improbable. Here's long-range Toddy. The 59th Rebel goes to John Corden. Long-range Toddy.
0: By winning that first division of the Rebel Stakes, long-range toddy has enough points to make the Kentucky Derby. If John Court remains his rider, he'll make just his fourth career start in the run for the Roses, and first since 2013, when he finished eighth with eventual three-year-old champion Will Take Charge. And it is our pleasure to welcome for the first time here to win the gate, jockey John Court. What thoughts went through your mind when long-range toddy crossed the wire ahead of Improbable in the Rebel?
2: Oh, what thoughts went through my head when he crossed the wire? Well, I was delighted that uh, I beat Improbable. Actually, right before that, I didn't know if I would get by him. I'd expected and I'd hoped to have collared him earlier, but as it turned out, it looked well executed on my part, which uh, was somewhat the strategy I had planned. And um, when I crossed that, I knew that uh, we were well on our way or on the path to the Derby.
0: Now this was your first time riding him. I mean, what notes had you made from watching his prior races, which included wins in two listed stakes at Remington Park and a second and third in stakes at Oaklawn?
2: Well, I had actually had the opportunity to work him one more and it was just a leisurely work, get familiar with him and I recognized the horse, in my opinion, was above average on intelligence as well as talent. So with that incorporated, uh, going into the race, I had planned to just get a good break and a good trip, and hopefully the speed would set up the way I had anticipated it to, uh, that I could run them down and uh, fend off the the favorite that was getting quite a bit of coverage. You
0: have said, my age doesn't define me, but how does it feel when your kids say you should get a senior citizen discount at a movie theater?
2: I love it. I'm the first one to ask for it. And I usually get carded. They're like, yeah, right. And I said, I've had them not too long ago at the Slim Chickens. The lady's like, you're not no senior citizen. And I said, I love it without my ID. And she, her mouth fell open. And she was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I was older than her. And she says, I'm a senior <laughs> citizen. And me and my friends, we had we had fun with it. So we did it the other night at McDonald's. I was there with some senior citizens, and I said, we all get senior citizens discount. <laughs> of course, they didn't question me there and didn't didn't ask to show my ID or anything, but that did happen at Slim Chickens.
0: Now, you talked about the Kentucky Derby briefly, mentioning we're on our way, and, I mean, your age does give you a long view of this sport, and I, I think about Orb winning the Kentucky Derby back in 2013, the last time you were there, by the way. A lot was made— of how the Phipps family had only run, I think, like eight horses ever in the race and over a hundred years of operation up to that point. The Derby was just not that big a deal to them in the big picture of the sport. So as someone with not as long a view as they have, but you've still ridden in a whole lot of races, how big a deal is running in that race again to you?
2: It's a big deal, Barry. I got into this game as a child, inspired by what I watched on TV and I loved horses. Before I could even ride them, I was saying that's what I was going to do. And it was the Kentucky Derby watching that two minutes. Most watched sports event worldwide that lured me in telling people I wanted to be a jockey. So in fact, I had a guy call me just two weeks ago, uh, instant messaged me with this social media. You can reach out from the fourth grade. I haven't spoke with him since probably the sixth grade, but He was just touching base with me and was amazed because he's been watching horse racing. And he said that, wow, I remember in the fourth grade, you said you were going to be not only a jockey, but a professional jockey. And it's amazing. Here we are in our mid-50s and you're still doing it. It's awesome. And then he called me and we talked and chatted a little bit. But it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's something to answer your question I've been pursuing since I was a child. And I've always been fascinated with the Kentucky Derby. It does have that allure.
0: Jockey John Court is with us here on In the Gate. He'll be aboard long-range toddy in the Arkansas Derby. Your career started back when Jimmy Carter was still president. The hostages were in <laughs> captivity in Iran. I mean, Michael Jordan had just been cut by his 10th grade basketball team. I'm not sure that one really happened, but whatever. And yet, even today, on non-race days, you're helping break two-year-olds for your father-in-law, the legendary trainer Jinx Fires. What keeps you going?
2: Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm afraid if I ever do find out and lose it, um, I might not have what it takes to <laughs> really, um, I know it's crazy, isn't it? But uh, I love it, I guess, to the for the most part. Uh, I love going out, getting out there and um, mixing it up. But I also love to, to ride in the afternoon and win. That's the same thing that Perry Utes talks about. He just so the day he's going to continue to ride as long as he can cuz he just loves winning.
0: You do have one other notable thing in common with Mike Smith. Both of you were featured on that docu series Jockeys that aired <laughs> on Animal <laughs> That's Planet. That's right. What was that like for you?
2: That was a unique experience. I would say um I didn't know that we would have to do so much footage shooting and and then what little they would use. So we would spend hours on it some days and do all kind of filming footage with the crew. And then there were some days we wouldn't use any of it. Not to go into uh, an example, but uh, we would just do what it took to make it real. A lot of people believe the show to be actuality and it's not actuality. It's a reality because we're, we step up to the plate to bring the real inside view to the patrons and those of interest of fanfare that are not familiar with racing and try to expand um, our fan base. More people interested in racing helps promote it.
0: So all of those things didn't quite happen the way they were
2: portrayed. I'm shocked. <laughs> well, uh, those things have happened, but not on an actual to where it was caught In actuality caught. Some things were caught, but they they were only there two to three times a week. So some of the best, Things that would happen, they wouldn't be available, or they wouldn't have their cameras set up. But but you have to understand, they're following us around with two cr- camera angles, filters, and a boom follows us over our head. So it's not like we're not aware. And they have uh, microphones uh, in place in certain areas, and some of the dialogue and uh, should I say vulgarities were sound bites.
0: I do know a thing or two about how that works, not going to lie. Yes, sir. (laughs) Now, some in our audience may not recognize the name John Court, but certainly those in the industry do. In 2007, John Court won the George Wolf Award, given to the jockey who best demonstrates high standards of personal and professional conduct. What did that award mean to you?
2: Well, I tell you what, it was very humbling to uh, be nominated, much less being voted in by your peers. And what it meant to me was apparently um, they like me out there. (laughs) That's the simple answer. But I've done some things with the Jocks Guild, with the racetrack ministries and the Children's Hospital, as well as especially the one I'm proud of i believe to be a co-founder of the pdjf which is the permanently disabled jockey fund one of the reasons when i got into the guild back in 1980 81 was to help some of these riders that i have witnessed that ended up sacrificing the all i saw that riders could be on top of the game and then in just one short incident uh, under this catastrophic circumstances, their career would be over and it would be devastating to their families and their livelihood. And to me, it was just something that was needed to be addressed. It was not a jockey problem. It was an industry problem. And over a course of time, we were able to uh, create the Permanently Disabled Jockey Fund as their own 501C organization and things such as that, I think, where I stood up to help other riders and other entities in the racing industry, they were able to recognize. Hey, every time Court shows up, I'll stand up. I'll be a, a talking head, and even sometimes you're literally laying your head on the chopping block under the circumstances when you're campaigning for certain changes when racing's moving along. And, and the, the long story you're getting here is, I guess, uh, it had enough riders over the course of my career to vote me in as a George Wolf. So. I was very honored with that.
0: Now, that's obviously a positive change for the industry. You have said, I hope I can continue to ride where I desire to ride when I'm not forced out, such as by father time or the changes in the industry. What does that mean, changes in the industry that would force you out? (laughs)
2: Well, you're witness, witnessing them. You know, I'm an old school guy. I love to switch my sticks. If they take whips away, I'll say, okay, what do they do now? I'll <laughs> ride them home. I don't know. There's all kind of changes that would probably turn me off to the point where I just say, okay, it's, my time has come. I have to walk away. But and when I say that, I mean forced out because I would be leaving not on my terms to where I could gracefully step away. I would be have to bow out because changes would force me out. If nothing else, father time, I could be too old, still want to ride, but not able to ride. I think there may be in the very future, an age requirement that something of changing of that nature too. And
0: one more on long range, Toddy, before we let you go, there won't be two, there won't be two divisions of this race this time as there were last time. What do you want to see out of him to tell you he's ready for Kentucky?
2: I want to see him win the Arkansas Derby. That's just (laughs) point blank. I want to see him win it impressively. Last time, the two divisions, they were within, I think, three hundredths on the time fracture, three hundredths of four. I can't remember something within a very close margin. And I just want to go in there and have the horse that can get it done impressively and follow the trail to the Triple Crown. It's just not the, the Derby, which is the ultimate dream, but once you get, if you get the Derby under your belt and you've got the Preakness and the Belmont, and then you're going to be rolling into the Breeders' Cups. And then before you know it, you know, you've got so many other interests in racing, the Pegasus and um, the Dubai Racing Festival. It's just amazing.
0: Well, American Pharoah certainly took the Arkansas route and route to the Triple Crown, and we certainly wish you the best of luck in trying the same thing. John Court, thank you so much for a few minutes. Thank you, Barry. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, though Santa Anita's situation is not the first time such thing has ever happened, what have we learned from what came before? We'll examine that when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. Since the last time we addressed the situation at Santa Anita, a 23rd horse has fallen since the beginning of the meet the day after Christmas, and it was only a matter of time before the saber-rattling began. California U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein has called for the remainder of the meet to be canceled, and the California Horse Racing Board is considering moving Santa Anita's race dates elsewhere to give officials more time to address the issues. You also knew that the PETA folks would get involved. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they say they're going straight to the office of Governor Gavin Newsom to demand action and results. Claiborne Farm President Walker Hancock pointed out in a tweet that it would take 600,000 signatures on a petition to place a referendum on a ballot to eliminate horse racing in the state. Hancock noted that PETA has 700,000 members in California alone. Okay. Deep breath, everybody. What we want to do is something constructive regarding this situation. Santa Anita is not the first track to face this sort of situation. Most notably, New York had to grapple with 17 horses dying at the Saratoga meet two years ago and 21 at Aqueduct in the winter of 2011-2012. The thing about those situations? The deaths went down afterward and weren't as clustered as what we've just described so there must be something we can learn from what happened in New York that could be applied to the situation now at Santa Anita. To help refresh our memories and provide a learned perspective on the matter, we welcome back to the show the New York State Equine Medical Director, Dr. Scott Palmer. Welcome, Dr. Palmer. Let's start here. Take us through the process your team used to determine what was going on at Aqueduct in 2011-2012. The
1: entire racing industry took notice of this and the governor of New York took notice of this. And the governor actually charged Naira with basically a challenge that said, you know, you have to find some people to figure this out and stop the, the injuries. You know, basically he said the quote I would give you was he said, hire a qualified independent investigator or a team of investigators to review the circumstances involving these breakdowns, analyze the causes of these breakdowns and recommend any necessary action to prevent equine breakdowns at NIRA facilities. So that was the charge of the task force from the governor's office. So that's what we did. We did a very systematic investigation of all the circumstances that we thought might have bearing on those fatalities. There were a number of speculations at the time about what was going on. Number one was the racetrack, which is natural, I suppose, in these circumstances. And we looked carefully at the racetrack, with using very scientific methods to analyze it. And we also looked at every other factor that we thought could possibly related to this. So it was, it was a very systematic process, Barry, that was conducted in an environment where we had complete independence from the governor's office, the Gracing Commission, or NIRA. Frankly, we had the the power of the governor behind us. We had the the gravitas to Perform this investigation in a way that people were comfortable with it and they knew that we were not interested in eliminating horse racing. We wanted to fix this problem and we got a very good cooperation from all of the stakeholders involved and we were able to put together a series of recommendations that uh, were put into place, some by NIRA, some by the Racing Commission by the horsemen, by veterinarians. So there were a large number of changes that were put in place that that actually made a difference. Now, the the good news I would report to you is that since that happened, we've had a more than 40% decrease in fatalities in New York. And that's really a, a very significant number. That's a huge success story. And it's meaningful for a number of reasons. It's the first time that this kind of investigation was ever done. And it took a long time. It took five months to do it. And and some of that was the fact that Jerry Bailey and Mary Scollet and Alan Foreman and I were pulling this together and, and we were learning as we were going. None of us had ever done anything like this before, but we had a combined skill set that enabled us to do it. But I, I won't say it was the most efficient process, but we, we did come up with a, a work product that has really helped to change the way we take care of horses and racehorses in New York and, and now in the mid-Atlantic states. So the key to this though, Barry, is understanding a couple of things. I mean, I, I think it's important we can actually say, you know, well, what, what, what did we learn by this process? You know, I think that's the important thing. It's not that we want to pat ourselves on the back and say we, we reduce racing fatalities uh, and, and training fatalities. All the total fatalities have gone down in New York, and that's great. But basically, what does that mean exactly? And I think there's a couple of things, at least three things that are really, really important as take-home lessons from the aqueduct experience. And if somebody wants to look and see exactly what we did, they can go online at the www.gaming.ny.gov website. And that's the commission website. You can click on horse racing and then click on equine health and safety. And then you can see a link to the task force report. You can download it. Uh, there's an executive summary. It's a 100-page report. You don't have to read the whole thing. But if you want to see the executive summary, that's available there. So... I don't want to get into all those details, but so what did we learn from this experience? The first thing we learned is that there is a risk of injury inherent in horse racing. There's a risk in everything we do. Horse racing is not unique. High-speed exercise has extra risks inherent with it by its very nature. But what we learned here, Barry, the most important thing is we learned that the high rate of equine fatalities that was in existence at the time, back in 2012, is not inevitable. We learned that equine fatalities can be reduced by a real-time, comprehensive risk management program. That's the key. It's not an act of God. It's not fate. It's not just a plain old accident. They didn't take a bad step. The question is, why did he take a bad step? And we've been able to use that approach to uh, help reduce injuries over the long term. Uh, The first year that we uh, applied these principles, we saw a big drop in fatalities, and people, some people thought, well, that's just a statistical anomaly. Well, it's been down for the last six years, but a six-year sustained improvement in the fatality rate in New York, and that's not an accident. That's not a chance event. So what does this risk management program look like? Well, the risk management program is basically we have options for managing risk in anything we do. One thing is we can stop the activity. We're not going to stop horse racing. That's not acceptable to us. We can accept the risk and say that's just the cost of doing business, but that's not acceptable either, and it's not sustainable. You can share the risk. That's an insurance policy, but that isn't going to work either because that's not going to decrease fatalities. That's just going to ease the economic impact, so that's no good. The only thing we can do, and that's where we focus our efforts, is on mitigating risk because the actual risk of a horse being injured in a race is a function of both risk factors that are in play and protective factors. To mitigate that risk. So it's risk factors and protective factors that have to be in balance. So there's three steps in the process. It's, it's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. The first step in the process is that we have to identify all applicable risk factors in four areas and introduce protective factors to mitigate them. So we have to come up with a plan. We have to do an analysis and come up with a plan. There are generic or general risk factors. For every racehorse in North America that we've, we've learned from doing research, epidemiological research from the Equine Injury Database that shows that intact male horses are increased risk of fatal musculoskeletal injury relative to uh, fillies, geldings, and mares. Now that's just a fact that we know from looking at hundreds of thousands of starts and it's a, a very important piece of information but it's, it's, it's something I just want to introduce this idea that there are different levels of risk, and there's levels of risk associated with individual horses. Now, there's another generic risk factor that applies to all racetracks in North America. For example, the short fields, the difficulty of filling races is true at every racetrack in North America. That fact puts pressure on the horsemen and on the, the racing office to provide the level of racing that we'd like to see so that there's increased demand for horses and we've got a low number of horses. That that means that some horses are put into the box that shouldn't be there due to economic pressures. That's another risk factor. It's true everywhere. That's true in Aqueduct. It's true at San It's true at every racetrack. Nobody's got an abundance of horses. There are meat specific risk factors that are particular to particular meats. For example, boutique meats like Del Mar and Saratoga have meet specific risk factors because people prepare for those races in a different way. They have a different training schedule and different pressures put on the trainers to make it to those races and those meets. And then finally, we've got facility specific risk factors that are unique to every facility, every venue. So there are unique things about Aqueduct. There are unique things about Saratoga. There are unique things about San Anita that would have bearing on this. So it's important to identify risk factors in all four of these areas to mitigate them. Basically, you have step one, step two. So you identify the risk factors, you design protective factors to mitigate them, and then you repeat that process in real time. Step one, step two, and then you analyze, you see how you're doing, monitoring the injuries with very accurate monitoring metrics. And then if there's a change, then we make a change. Then we design new protective factors. If things are going great, that's terrific, but we always monitor. This is not a one-step job and you're done. This is a, a a process that goes on every day, every week, every year. And this is how we we have to monitor these things and keep in tune with them because step three is once you've got these plans in place, this step one and step two, once that's in place, then that's great. But we can't pat ourselves on the back and think we're done because why? Because stuff still happens. You still can have unusual injury clusters in place. And that's exactly what happened at Saratoga in 2017. And it's exactly what happened in Santa Anita. There's a, in California, we've, we've got a, a really great program in place, very capable people doing very good work, and still this happened. And how is that possible? Well, what that really means is even though you can have all of these mechanisms in place that, that will reduce fatalities, something new has come up. There's something previously un- unidentified as a risk factor that hasn't been addressed with the current protocols that are in place. And the question you have to ask yourself in those situations is, what has changed? For example, in Saratoga in 2017, we had an excellent program in place for three years, and our fatality rate was lower than it had ever been. And lo and behold, we had a spate of injuries at the start of the meeting, 17 at Saratoga. And immediately, we had meetings with all the stakeholders. We looked and said, well, what's going on? What's different here that's it's causing this? And we determined there were a few things that were involved. Again, it's never one single thing. It's never just one thing. There's no silver bullet here. So there were a few things involved. We designed protective factors, and we stopped there, After a couple of weeks of work, we were able to, to take care of that, and, redu- and the fatality numbers fell dramatically.
0: What was different?
1: What was different? There were, there were a couple of things. First of all, and I own this piece of it, that I didn't appreciate that there were some unique risk factors in play at these boutique meets. When I first did the work at Aqueduct in 2012, I was naive enough to think that whatever worked at Aqueduct would work every place else. And and what I didn't appreciate was it's more complicated than that. And in fact that these boutique meets and with the intense amount of competition, Barry, um, it was a puzzlement to me. I really couldn't figure it out. What was going on? I, I didn't understand the fact that first of all, in, in New York, at Saratoga at a boutique meet like that, the schedule for the horses that are racing there is you have a young horse. You want that horse to win its maiden race at Saratoga as a 2 year old there's no practicing there's no practice racing there's no getting ready when that horse goes into the gate at Saratoga that horse has to be on its A game and because the competition is so intense and then say so your goal is to win that that maiden race at Saratoga then you're going to win another stake a little bit later in the fall and then you're going to be in hopefully be in the Breeders' Cup you know in November and that's the schedule that a lot of these horses are working with for that particular meet i didn't appreciate that at the time. And so having figured that out, we were able to look at the pressures that are being applied and and, and institute some protective measures. And at the same time as that Barry, something else that I didn't understand was I really didn't understand that Naira had been using uh, providing stabling for the charity horse shows in May and June at Saratoga. So that was a limiting factor in how much work could be done on the racetrack to get ready for the race meet. So, it was apparent that, and in, in talking with McPeterson and, and looking at the history of the racetrack and the injury rates over the years and the time that we were, had to get ready, that we needed to have more time to get ready, get that racetrack ready to go we had a very cold early spring in Saratoga in 17. The ground was was different. It was was frozen for a longer time, getting equipment in there and, and manipulating that ground and, and making sure that the, the surface was in good shape. None of that happened in an optimal sense. We did a great job of that in 18 and had a record low number in Saratoga in 18 for fatalities. And that was a piece of it. So we, we identified problems, Barry, and we addressed them with protective factors and it worked. And that's the process that has to go forward. Now, this program that we did in in 2012, we made 38 recommendations, but there have been new recommendations. It's a program that's been constantly evolving. And for example, we now have required continuing education for horse trainers. We now use out-of-competition scrutiny, increased out-of-competition scrutiny for horses. These are two really, really important key pieces that were not in place in 2012 but have been added since that time. So I want to emphasize that this is an example of how this process evolves. And it's a real-time process that we're never done. The work is never done. It's an ongoing everyday process. And recently, and we have applied some of these things in other mid-Atlantic racetracks, the same protocols were used in Laurel, Maryland by the Maryland racing commission a few years ago to address an injury spate there. And it worked. Um, So it's worked at Aqueduct. It's worked at Saratoga. It's worked at Laurel. And these principles are, very time tested. They are uh, very comprehensive. They're thoughtful, um, and I think that that the mess the message I would like to convey to our industry. There's an awful lot of fear right now, Barry. There's there's anxiety. There's fear. There's um, tremendous frustration about the experiences that we're having out here in Santa Anita this year, and I think it's really important to, to for people to understand that you know there's a panic, frankly, on the part of a lot of people. There's a lot of hand-wringing, there's all kinds of stress, there's all kinds of political involvement now that are all sorts of pressures that are being applied. So I think it's important in this kind of environment. You can draw an analogy back to, to the, the um, <laughs> well, frankly, it's, it goes back to Winston Churchill in 1939 in, in England, prior to World War II, there was this, a slogan that they came up with that said, keep calm and carry on. And in a sense, that's really exactly what we need to do here. To solve the problems we're facing right now, we have to have an independent investigation. We have to let that investigation go forward, uninhibited, no holds barred, no sacred cows. Everything gets looked at. Let's follow the evidence. Let the chips fall where they may. And if that happens, we're going to be okay. This is going to be a horrible you know, process. It's going to be painful. But we're going to learn from it, and we're going to make horse racing stronger from it in the long run. But that's the key, in my opinion.
0: Dr. Scott Palmer, the New York State Equine Medical Director, is with us here on In the Gate. I want to touch on a few touch points that our audience is thinking about as well. Mm -hmm. I know, for example, that each state has slightly different rules when it comes to medication. But basically, there are lists of medications that are permitted and those that basically are not. It's not that different from state to state horses run all over the country with medication and this sort of thing is not happening everywhere all the time as it is at santa anita as it did at aqueduct so when you get a spate of fatalities like the two you mentioned how much does the medication issue factor into your approach
1: well it's very very important and it we have to be careful when we talk about the medication issue. It's important that we not use a broad brush in this regard because it's it's a little deceiving and it's an oversimplification of the problem that leads to misunderstandings. I would say that there are a couple of critical pieces of, of, of medication information that we look at. We, we, are con- we want to concentrate on medication that's used to manage pain and to control inflammation in joints, for example. So we're looking at joint injections, and we're looking at non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. These are very useful, appropriate medications that are used every day in people and in horses, athletes, and it's, it's good medical practice. It's sound medical practice to do these things. However, with that said, if these drugs are used in such a way that, A, they mask the signs of of lameness leading up to a race so that the pre-race examination cannot be effectively accomplished or B that there is not enough time to evaluate the results of that therapy before the horse is entered to race. Those are enormous challenges and problems. And so, well, I would never uh, say that phenylbutazone, for example, the most common NSAID non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like Tylenol and people and such, but that's a very useful drug. But, if you give that drug, we used to have it as a 24-hour rule. You couldn't give any view within 24 hours. One of the things that evolved from this task force work and also with the input of Dr. Verderosa, chief of examining veterinarian in Naira, was he was concerned that he was not able to accurately identify horses with, with soreness in the pre-race examination in the morning of the race because they were getting phenylbutazone close enough that it was still having an effect. So we made a 48-hour rule in New York where non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs cannot be given within 48 hours of the race. And that, I believe, has helped to make a difference. We also made a rule in New York that joint injections could not be administered within seven days of a race and that all the joint injections need to be reported on an electronic database so that the commission has a record of all the joint injections. So we can look at that in the event of an injury and determine whether or not medication had a role because it, sometimes it will and sometimes it won't. It's not a broad brush. You have to look at every individual case. But yes, I think backing up the NSAIDs and backing up the use of corticosteroids has been helpful. And that's a very time-tested approach as well. So I do think that medication could play a role. But I think that it's an individual matter for each horse, and it's limited really to the analgesics that, uh, that are, are used.
0: Now, you talked about the database being used in New York. There's the larger one, the Equine Injury Database, which was a jockey club initiative, started in 2009. So it's been up and running for a decade. Racetracks enter all appropriate information, and presumably patterns are more easily seen that can help drive action toward better care and fewer deaths. How are racetrack officials using this data?
1: That's a great question, Barry. And, and the Equine Injury Database was started by Mary Sculley, who is the Equine Medical Director in Kentucky. And I think it's been one of the fundamental positive changes or developments we've had in the industry because it's given us the ability to look at that data and make real assessments of what the risk factors are. In fact, that data is analyzed by, by, by a lot of people, including myself. But Tim Parkin at the University of Glasgow is, is the epidemiologist that the Jockey Club works with for the most part. And he's done a fabulous job of identifying risk. Uh, he was the guy that did the first look at surfaces and determined that dirt surfaces had higher risk for fatalities than turf and synthetic surfaces. So, you know, there's some, some really important information that we've learned from that. We've also been able to identify facts such as that the risk of injuries increased with change in trainer. For the first 30 days after a horse is claimed, he's at increased risk of injury. And that's been, that data has been used for regulations that put a horse in jail for 30 days after he's claimed in the sense so he doesn't enter in a time when maybe the new trainer hasn't had time to figure out uh, what's going on with that horse. So that's been, been helpful for regulatory process. So those are just two examples of how the data that we get from the Equine Injury Database has allowed us to develop protective factors to mitigate risk, as I mentioned earlier. It's been a tremendous help. Now, you talked about
0: the fatality rates by surface, and it's pretty significant. Dirt, fatalities per 1,000 start. Synthetic, 1.23. Turf, 1.20. And at Santa Anita, all but four of those 23 deaths occurred on the dirt. Even the most recent one in a turf race came when the horses crossed onto that 40-yard path across the dirt, which happens when you run the downhill turf course. So in the big picture, what do you think of those numbers?
1: Well, Barry, I think that... We have an obligation to make racing as safe as possible for our horses. I I don't think there's any question about that. And I think that the issue of the turf and particularly the synthetic surfaces, we're running a lot more races on turf today than we used to. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I think there's a place for dirt horse racing in America. If we replaced all the dirt tracks with synthetic tracks, I think it it would be a very difficult process to do right now. Frankly, I mean, intuitive, you say, well, sure, well, let's just use synthetic racetracks and, and that'll make it better. Well, in fact, it's a trade off barrier. There's, there's a couple of things. First of all, remember that we've been running on dirt for hundreds of years, and running on synthetic surfaces is a fairly recent development, and there are different surfaces out there. Initially, those tracks were advertised as essentially maintenance-free or limited maintenance. And it turns out that's not really true, that we've learned that the surfaces do require maintenance. We also have learned with our experience in California, as you may remember, had mandated synthetic surfaces, and, and they ran for quite a bit of time on synthetic surfaces out here and then switched back to dirt. Now, that was a political decision, not a medical decision. And, I, and I'm not going to comment on that. But I, I will say, though, that When I first started as an equine medical director, we looked at the first three years of our necropsy program and were able to determine the pattern of injury among all the horses. And I thought it'd be useful and interesting to compare our pattern of injury with that of of California, who had been running on synthetic surfaces during that time, from essentially from 2010 through 13, they were running on synthetic surfaces in California. When I looked at their injury profile and compared it with New York, I found that it was largely similar, strikingly similar for the most part, but there were some differences. And for example, the rate of carpal injuries in New York was much higher than the rate of carpal injuries on the synthetic surfaces. And conversely, the rate of pelvic fractures on synthetic surfaces is much higher than it was in New York and dirt. So it's a trade-off, Barry, that those surfaces can certainly limit certain types of injuries, but then you get different types of injuries. Soft tissue injuries, back injuries on the synthetics are increased. And so it's not quite as simple as maybe we hoped it would be, as many things are in life. But I think that thoughtful consideration of the role of synthetic surfaces needs to be looked at again, and I think that that would be my comment. That I think there is a niche for those surfaces. I think that it represents a, a safety factor for the horses. Also represents an economic potential factor for the tracks because you lose your field size tremendously when when you get off a turf course, for example, in the rain, and you know you take the race off the turf, and and a lot of people just drop out of it. The field size goes way down. If we had a synthetic alternative, for example, that in the event of a, of a rain event, you could move that race instead of going to the dirt and run it on, the, on the synthetic surface, I think you probably have a better economic situation and a safer situation for horses. So I do think there's a role for it, Barry.
0: There are just no easy answers here, but this is an awful lot to think about. Thank you so much, Dr. Palmer, for taking the time to share this with us. It's going to take a lot more consideration.
1: Um, it's my pleasure, Barry. It's a very complex problem, but I, can, I want to assure people that that they understand that we're aware of the challenges. We have a plan. you know. We have a protocol that we can follow, and we just need to let it go forward. We need to be careful. We need to be calm. This is not a panic mode. We don't need to think this is the end of the world. We just need to put our heads down and be careful about this, do the right kind of independent investigation. This is going to be okay when we're done.
0: Our thanks to Dr. Scott Palmer and to John Court. We don't know the specific roots of the problems at Santa Anita Racecourse, so we can't cry animal cruelty or assign blame. But another incident from harness racing is a different ball of wax where the evidence backs up a cruelty claim. On a Monday afternoon at a racetrack in Ohio, a horse got bumped and started a pileup. The sulky carrying the driver flipped, and the driver crashed to the track, but the horse, now spooked, lost his cool, got all worked up. He bolted left and wound up in the pond in the infield, in ten-foot water, with the sulky still attached. It took two divers an hour to find him, by which point he had drowned, a sickening sight for the crewmen who were dispatched. But here's the thing, the final two races went off like nothing had happened. No stopping the card, no acknowledgement at all. What's happening at Santa Anita's not good, but not like this. That harness track's got unmitigated gall.